Let's just, just pray together. Father, thank you that you've been with us all day. You always are. Lord, every minute of our lives, you're guarding over us. Lord, we're never, we're never out of your presence. We're never out of your care. Lord, we do love you and we do need you so very much. <clears throat> Father, as we turn to your word now, we, we ask that you'll speak to us and that it'll go into our hearts. Lord, that the wonderful truth in your word will just more and more become part of us and, and change us. Lord, just anoint what I say now, and Lord, anoint everyone who's hearing it. Lord, because we ask this in, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right. Okay, well, <clears throat> tonight we <clears throat> come on to the second of the two aspects of our third priority, which is our work of faith and our labour of love towards the Lord, uh, towards the world, sorry. Remember we've seen it's the Lord first, he's our first priority, then each other, and then the world, unbelievers. And last time we looked at evangelism, the first of the aspects, we're here to preach the gospel. And you'll remember that I was saying that it's no good speaking the gospel, it's no use telling people about Jesus unless our lives are actually matching up to the gospel that we're preaching. And you remember I said that the truth of the matter is that we are the only Bible that most people are ever going to read. And we're going to concentrate tonight on the aspect of living out the gospel in relation to those who aren't saved. And what we're going to be looking at is doing good works in the world. This is the second aspect of our responsibility to the world, that we should be seen in the love of God to be doing good works towards the world. Just go to Galatians 6 and verse 10. And we'll see this immediately from Paul. Galatians 6 and verse 10. And Paul says, So then, <clears throat> as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to the household of faith. Now there's priority number two. The church comes before the world, but nevertheless... He says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men. And so we have this priority. We are here. We have a responsibility as a church of Jesus Christ to be doing good to the people around us in the world who don't know Jesus. But let me say immediately that Paul says here, so then, as we have opportunity... This isn't meaning that, uh, you know, all Christians have got to suddenly dash out and become full-time social workers or anything like that. It's simply saying that as we relate to unbelievers day by day, 
that we are going to be the channels for Jesus to do good works into their lives. Go to Matthew 5. Let's see this more clearly from the teaching of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5. And if you find verse 13... And Jesus says this, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, can you see the emphasis there? Certainly, we must tell people about Jesus. And if they become Christians, then they're giving glory to their Father in heaven. But here, Jesus is homing in on the fact that if unbelievers see our good works in the world, for that reason, they will give glory to Father who's in heaven. Go to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. And in verse 11, Peter writes to the church, he said, Beloved, I beseech you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Maintain good conduct among the Gentiles so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now, can you see the emphasis there? Peter's saying that they may not hear the gospel you're preaching, no, but that they may see your good works and glorify God. And in this whole thing about that we've got to be doing good works in the world, there are two elements to it, all right? And um, these two things obviously apply to each other, but here we're looking at the relationship that we're to have towards the world. And the two elements are this. In order to be doing good works in the world, it involves firstly the way you treat people, and secondly, what you actually do for them. And we're going to look at those two things. And remember, this is in relation, not to each other in the church. We've covered that. But this is to outsiders, people who don't know the Lord. So first of all, the crux, the crunch point is the way you treat people. You should be in 1 Peter. Go to chapter 2 and verse 17. There's something very, very important that we need to understand here. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17. Now listen what Peter says. He says, Honour all men. Love the brotherhood. There's a church. Fear God. Honour the emperor. But the bit we're concerned with is this. He says, Honour all men. A totally comprehensive statement. But what does it mean to honour people? The Greek word here for honour is actually timaio, and it literally means a valuing or a valuation. We have got to make sure as believers that we value absolutely everyone. 
It'll help us if we see this word, timaio, in some other verses. Go, go to James. James is just before 1 Peter. James 5 verse 7, just to give you an idea of what this honouring all men actually entails. James 5 and verse 7, he says, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient over it until it receives the early and the late rain. And Timaeo there is precious, the precious fruit of the earth. Go back into 1 Peter, chapter 1 and verse 19. And he's speaking about Jesus having redeemed us from our sins. And he says, You know that you were redeemed from the futile ways, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. There's Timaeo, precious blood of Christ. Chapter 2 again, verse 4. Now this is speaking about Jesus. Come to him, to that living stone, rejected by men, but in God's sight chosen and precious. And that word precious is Timaeo. And so what we've got here is that we must make sure, as Christians, that all people, all individuals, are precious to us. When the Bible talks about honouring all men, the Greek word, timaio, means really, let them be very precious to you. And in the same way that we've just seen that that word is used, that the harvest is precious to the farmer. Of course it is. This is bread and butter. Or that Jesus was precious to the Father. Of course he is. He's his son. And that that is the way in which we ought to relate to people that we meet. It's important that we hold everyone in respect that they be precious to us. And the reason for that is quite simply this. Every unbeliever out there, just as we are, are created in the image of God. And it is that, as we're going to see, that is the fundamental thing that we've got to grasp and understand if we are to be relating correctly, not just to each other, but indeed to unbelievers as well. There are also, just turn back into James 3, there are some Christians who believe that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, but that when they fell into sin, they lost it, and that you only get it back when you're converted. Now I want to show you that that isn't the case at all. James chapter 3 and verse 9, and he's talking about the tongue, but he says, with it, that's the tongue, with it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who are made in the likeness of God. Now there we have a straight statement that men are made, and women as well, obviously, and children, are made in the likeness of God. And James wrote that, obviously, after the fall. And so what we're seeing is that every human being is created in the image of God and is therefore precious and is therefore worthy of honour and respect. For us to truly love God will mean two things. It means, firstly, that we will honour Him because of who He is, our mighty God, and He will be tremendously precious to us. But to truly love God means a second thing, and it's this. It means that we will show honour 
to men, women and children who are created in his image. You see, if men, women and children are created in the image of God, to therefore treat them with a disrespect is to treat God with a disrespect as well. God is worthy of respect because who he is. But you see, men, women and children are worthy of respect because of who they are. They are created in the image of God. And they are worthy of respect for that reason alone. And you see, that is why, I mean, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 13, it expressly says that love is not rude. And this is the reason why rudeness, being rude to people, or doing anything that might degrade people, this is why it's such an evil thing to do. You see, if you deny somebody the respect due to them as being created in the image of God, if you deny that respect to them, then what you are doing, you are actually denying the likeness of the image of God in them. And if you deny the image of God in someone, you are actually denying the image of God himself. Can you see what I mean? Men and women are treated in the image of God. If you throw dirt on men and women, you throw dirt on God as well, because you're throwing it on his image in them. And it's very, very important that we realize this. We must make sure that we never, ever touch the image of God in other people through rudeness, through degrading them in any way at all. We must ensure that we hold all of them, everybody, extremely precious. And we've got to remind ourselves that the value that God set upon mankind. I mean, we're now talking not in relationship to ourselves, we've covered that, but with the unbelievers out there, we've got to ask ourselves, just how precious are they to God? Just how precious? How much does God honour them? And the answer is this, God set a value on the lives of men and women and children who are sinners, and the price the value that he set upon it was the life and death of Jesus, his own son. If that's how much God values and honours unbelievers, then can you see we must dare not value them any less? Go to Titus, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus. Titus and find chapter 3. And in verse 1, Paul says this, he says, Remind them, I speaking about the church, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for any honest work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrelling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all men. Now, do you see that? To show perfect courtesy to all men, treating everyone with the respect that they deserve as being created in the image of God. Now, when we're saying this about the importance of honouring people because they're made in the image of God, 
This is not going to make us, as Christians, wimps when it comes to dealing with the evil that men and women do. I mean, for instance, if a police force needs to use force in dealing with crime, no problem. No problem whatsoever. If the police need to use force in dealing with criminals, that is no problem at all. But, if the police went beyond the use of minimum necessary force, using more than was needed, then what happens is that they step over a line into violence. And violence degrades people, and therefore they are in sin. But let me say as well that there are times when sometimes the minimum force that the police need is actually to shoot and kill somebody. And that is not a problem to God. That is not a problem to God. It shouldn't be to us. Can you see, we're saying that this isn't going to make us weak or anything like that so that people can get away with murder just because they're created in the image of God. All right? And that, for instance, the police are entitled to use minimum force. But, in so doing, for instance, if they then went on to employ any degradation of the criminals they've captured, that would be a sin. Can you see? For instance, say they arrested somebody, alright, and they got him into custody, and then they started hurling verbal abuse at them. The police have done right to detain a suspect, but if they then proceed to mock them, call them names, degrade them, or beat them, can you see then they're right over the line and they have gone completely into sin. So that even, in, even when you are justifiably punishing somebody, and there is justifiable punishment against people, even when the punishment is justified, the moment it pushes over into degrading the person who's been punished, then you are sinning against that person. Can you see? There's a difference between punishment and degradation. Anything that degrades human beings is wrong. And that is why, for instance, torture is so satanic. I mean, you haven't got to learn much about, you know, sort of like particularly the South, particularly the South American countries. But not just them, even more civilised countries. The use of torture in various situations. And if you think about it, why? It's because torture uses pain. It's trying to break someone through pain and degradation. And for instance, in some forms of torture, you know, they make the people sort of stand out in public with no clothes on. That is to degrade them. Or for instance, they use excrement and things like that, and they throw them in big vats of it. Can you see how that is satanic? It is degrading those particular people. And the thing with torture is that eventually it reduces the person to mindlessness. It breaks their will, and it leaves them with absolutely no free will. And the fact that human beings have a free will 
is one of the key fundamental things about having been created in the image of God in the first place. Because God, above everybody, has free will, and he's given that to us as well. So can you see anything that takes away a human being's self-respect or dignity, anything that degrades them is absolutely wrong. Now at this point, let me just say that in fact this is the very reason why the Bible is very, very clear in its teaching that murderers ought to be put to death. Capital punishment for premeditated murder is something that God wants in all societies. And the reason for it is because it is retaining the dignity and the value of the victim and their life. If you put a murderer in prison for 20 years, you can put a price on the life of the person they killed. Because you can calculate how much it costs to keep a, keep a murderer in prison for 20 years. Can you see? So valuable is someone's life that if that is taken in a premeditated murder, then nothing short of the murderer losing their lives can enhance the dignity and the value of the life of the person who they have actually killed. So therefore, we seeing that what it boils down to is that any form of dehumanizing people is sin. God hates and de detests anything that dehumanizes people. Now what this boils down to is this. People are therefore, all people, are therefore worthy of respect as human beings, irrespective of what they've done. Quite irrespective of what they've done, they are worthy and they deserve respect as human beings. The rapist is entitled to respect as a human being. The child molester is. The Nazi is. Can you see? This doesn't for one moment excuse the evil that they've done and they should be punished. But as I said, there's a difference between punishing someone and degrading someone. These people should not, not be degraded. They should be punished. And we must remember that. Whoever we're dealing with, every human being is worthy of being honoured. They are precious. They are valuable because they are created in the image of God. And one of the things that Satan has always tried to do is to dehumanize. This is one of the big things that he always tries to do against the human race. Dehumanize someone, you're robbing them of the image of God. In some ways, if you can kill the image of God in someone, you're killing God himself. That is exactly what Satan would like to do. And one of the most subtle forms of this dehumanizing process that's going on today is in actual fact something which is very, very widely accepted as an idea. And it's the modern day sort of social liberalism that fails to hold people morally responsible for their own wrongdoing. I mean, for instance, these people would say that crime isn't a sin, it's a social illness. Do you see what I mean? Due to deprivation in childhood. 
So they would look at a criminal and they would say, he's not bad, he's ill. Now, can you see the point? You can't help being ill, but you can help being bad. So these people say, they're not bad, they're ill. They don't need to be punished, they need to be rehabilitated. Can you see? Take, for instance, the bully boys, the thuggos on the street corners on a Saturday night. They're not really thugs, according to this thinking. They, they, but they weren't loved properly when they were little babies. They didn't grow up with enough love, poor dears. It's, it's not really, it's not their fault. If they'd have had a better life, they wouldn't be thuggos. And can you see, basically, what's happening? We're saying that human beings can't help the way they are. And therefore, they might as well be robots. Can you see what I mean? Your free choice, moral accountability and free choice has absolutely gone. As soon as you say to someone, you're a thug, but you can't help it. It's just that you didn't have a very happy childhood. The moment you say that to them, you've taken away their free will. Because you're saying you have no control over your life whatsoever. You are purely the victim of circumstances. And the whole point about being created in the image of God and having free will is that we are not merely the victim of circumstances. We might be the victim of circumstances, but we are in control of our reaction to whatever those circumstances are. Do you see that? Whether our reaction is good or whether our reaction is going to be bad. Remember, the essence of being created in the image of God is that we have moral choice. And as soon as you swallow this idea you know, that sort of criminals, it's just because they had an unhappy childhood. As soon as you swallow that idea, you've taken away their moral accountability. You're saying it's not your fault, there's nothing you could have done about it anyway. You've taken away the image of God in them. I mean, let me sort of like demonstrate this. I mentioned rape before, alright, because there are many people that if they got hold of a rapist, they would degrade him. In, in a thousand different ways. And I'm saying that must never, ever be the case. Now, let's actually look at the rapist. There are two things that a rapist isn't. The first one is this. A rapist is not an animal to be treated as such. And that's one reaction of some human beings if they discover that someone's a rapist. They'll, you know, they'll say he's behaved like an animal and, and, and they'll want to treat him like one. And then they'll degrade him. No, a rapist isn't an animal. Human beings are not animals. We are totally apart from them. We are created in the image of God. They are not. So that's the first thing a rapist isn't. The second thing that a rapist isn't is this. A rapist is not a helpless and therefore innocent victim of psychological factors. That is what the psychologists will tell you, but that isn't what the Bible tells us. So there are the two things that he isn't. I'll bring it aside here, because some Christians fall into this same, uh, same deception, and it's in regards to being demonized. There are many, many Christians who think that demons can make you do things. Now, we need to understand a demon can't make you do anything. A demon 
cannot make anyone do anything that wasn't in their heart already. Can you see the important point? You can't just be walking along the road, you know, sort of like as a Christian or even as an unbeliever, you know, kind of minding your own business with no violence in your heart. And then a demon sort of comes in and you go and beat an old lady up. And so, oh, it weren't my fault, it was a demon made me do it. Can you see? No. Demons can only get people, they can only spur you on in sin you have already given into in your own heart. So what we're saying is that anything that says this sin is not our fault is wrong. Can you see? The moment you say that sin is not somebody's fault, that they had no choice but to do it, you are robbing them of the image of God inside of them. Let me tell you now what a rapist is. A rapist is a person who has quite willfully, in varying stages over maybe years and years and years, given in to his lust, given in to his selfishness, given in to his desire for power and degrading ladies. He's someone who has systematically and willfully given into that. And as a consequence, he eventually becomes a rapist. Now the thing is this, by the time he becomes an actual rapist, by the time he commits the sin of rape, it may well be that he can no longer control himself. I accept that, because his sin has so totally taken him over. But the point is this, he got to that position purely by his own free will. Do you see that? And it is nobody's fault except his own. Nothing else can be blamed. Oh, I wasn't loved when I was younger or anything like that. You may reach a point where you can no longer control your sin, but the point is we only get to that point because we have willfully and systematically given into sin when we could have said no. So therefore, with a rapist, he is worthy of respect as a human being. And he should not himself be degraded in any way at all. And because he is a human being, created in the image of God, and because he does have free moral choice, he should therefore be punished. Can you see? Morally free human beings need to be punished for their actions. Because when you punish someone, you're declaring that they didn't have to do it. And they did it, and now they're taking their just desserts. But when you rehabilitate people, you're saying, oh, it's not really their fault. They can't help it. It's not their fault, when in actual fact, it is their fault completely. So then, therefore, we've got to love and honour individuals as being unique and free and worthy of honour and respect because they are created in the image of God. And anything, anything that takes away their free will is from the devil. Now that is what honouring them. It's a two-edged sword. Because we as Christians are commanded to honour men and women and children, 
On the one hand, it means we will treat them with love and respect and courtesy. That's on the one hand. But on the other hand, when they transgress, we will want to see punishment. Now, can you see what the two-edged sword is? All right. That's important to remember that. Anyway, there's the theology. Now, let's see it working out in practice, all right? We've got to honour all men. And unless that is our basic attitude to unbelievers, then, you know, to kind of preach the gospel is just not going to work. They're going to see right through it. Right, we're seeing we must treat everyone with the respect they deserve. How does it turn out in practice? Number one, for instance, discipline your children. Those of you who have got kids... Discipline them. Give them a good hiding if it's necessary. And sometimes with children it is. But don't ever be rude to them. Now, can you see the difference? Don't ever degrade them. Can you see? And if you've sinned against them, say sorry to them. Can you see that balance? Treat them with respect, but that doesn't mean that you let them get away with murder. Example number two, just say you're driving a lot and there's this absolute idiot who drives into you, okay? And let's say that they were driving dangerously, irresponsibly, and it was purely their own fault. Now then, if that's the case, get out of your car and rebuke them. Rebuke them and call the police. Bring the force of the law onto them. That is absolutely right. But don't swear at them. Can you see? You're free to rebuke them. But the moment you swear at them, you're starting to degrade them. Can you see the difference? Uh, let's say that they're a bit overweight. Don't start calling them a fat slob. Can you see? Because immediately you're trying to degrade them. It's right to rebuke. It's right to call the police. Yes, of course it is. But the moment that you start getting name-calling, intimidating them, or anything like that, you've stepped over the line and you're no longer honouring them as being created in the image of God. Maybe they're a foreigner. Don't start getting racist with them. And I mean, I've known people who aren't racist, but in a situation like that, if the guy who drove into them was Chinese, they'd suddenly be anti-Chinese. Can you see what I mean? That thing inside of us that sometimes wants to degrade people is totally, totally wrong, and we must make sure that we don't do it. And also, it goes without saying, you know, don't kick last night's dinner out of them as well. And that is in our hearts. Can you see how degrading that would be to them? Because there'd be no need to. So don't be rude to them. Don't <coughs> degrade them in any way at all. Yet nevertheless rebuke them and ensure that they're punished according to the law. Now, are you getting the point about honouring people? Can you see? It doesn't mean that we're soft, but it does mean that we ensure that everyone is treated with the respect they deserve as people who are created in the image of God. So we must stand firm against wrongdoing. And we must as Christians. When we see people doing wrong, we must stand against it. But we must always ensure that we treat the perpetrators of that wrongdoing with respect. Doesn't mean turning a blind eye to their sin. 
anything like that, but we must make sure that we treat them with the respect that God wants us to. I mean, one thing that, that I instinctively do, and I think the more people who do this, the better, is what I call striking a blow for the consumer. You know, I mean, the poor, innocent consumer when he comes up against bad traders. You see what I mean? Now there, I'm a great believer if you come up against bad trading, if you buy something and you find that it's shoddy goods or something like that, or you find there's unfair trading going on, well, you stand your ground with them. You stand for your rights as a consumer. Absolutely, no problem. If consumers don't do that, then the traders are going to keep getting away with murder, aren't they? But here's the point. Stand your ground, but don't be rude to them. There's a difference between standing by a till and very gently and firmly saying, I am not leaving here until I have my money back. And if I don't get it back, I will contact the Office of Fair Trading. There's a big difference between that, which is valid, and standing there swearing your head off at them because you're not getting any satisfaction. Can you see? The one is legitimate, but the other is degrading them as individual people. So we must make sure we don't do that. Let's think about bosses at work. I don't know how many of you are bosses at work. But for instance, don't lord it over the people who work for you. Can you see? That, that's a dead easy way to degrade people, isn't it? If you've got authority at work, well, I mean, all the people under you, you could use your authority to degrade them. Well, if you do that as a Christian, it totally cancels out what you're trying to say to them. I mean, for instance, if you are a boss, you do your job and you make sure they do theirs. That's absolutely valid. If they don't, sack them. No problem whatsoever. A Christian employer doesn't need to put up with, with skivers just because he's a Christian. Give them warning if they're not working properly or they can't do the job. Well, okay, turn them away, no problem. But the point is, don't be a snotty little tin pot dictator at work. Because as soon as you do that, can you see you're degrading them? You're treating them like insects. You're treating them like your slaves. When they're not, they are people created in the image of God. Under your authority at work, they may well be. But nevertheless, you must make sure that you honour them as created in the image of God. Let's look at the other side of this. Workers at work, all right? This is a word to the Christian Marxists, <laughs> all right? And it's quite simply this. Don't treat the bosses as mortal foes. The moment you decide that kind of bosses are nanas, I suppose, would be the kind of thing. As soon as you declare war on bosses per se, immediately you're starting to degrade them. You're lumping all bosses together in the same kind of category, can you see, and declaring war on them. And that is absolutely wrong. Don't be a troublemaker at work. Get on with your job. We're not saying be a wimp. There may well be a time to stand up to the management if injustice is being done. But when you do it, do it respectably. Do it respectfully to them. Can you see? Not charging in there, letting them have it in the name of the workers or anything like that. Can you see? Treating them and remember, if you're a worker with a boss or people over you, remember that is that they are in authority over you in God's will. Can you see? Therefore, you owe them your respect, not just as people, but as those who are in charge of you at work as well. So can you see that? We've got to make sure 
that we stand against things that are wrong, that we don't become wimps, but we must make sure that we treat people in the way that Jesus did. Jesus never degraded anybody. He spoke the truth. He spoke against them. He exposed people publicly, but he never, ever degraded them. And we must ensure that we don't either. Right, okay, so there we've seen, that is the way that we must treat people, with absolute respect and perfect courtesy, because unbelievers, the same as us, are created in the image of God. So now we can move on to the second thing, and we can sort of like now or cover the area right. We've seen how we're supposed to treat them, but what can we, what sort of things can we actually do for them? We start now on the area of practical service to the world because the practical service will come out of settling that you've got a right attitude towards them because believe me if you really respect people as having been created in the image of God then you'll want to help them you'll really want to serve them the one flows from the other now again with our practical service to the world two levels the corporate level i.e. society at large on the individual level, helping people individually. Let's, let's do the corporate first. Now, I want to say with this that what I'm going to say now won't apply to all Christians, all right? When it comes to serving the world or serving society in a corporate sense, there aren't many, many Christians who can actually do that. Let me explain. I would say that the Christian social worker is serving corporate society. Can you see what I mean? But not all of us can be social workers, you see. And God calls people, Christians, into charity work, into politics. We need Christian politicians very badly. He calls them into human rights, overseas aid, etc., etc. All these things. We need men and women working in that social issue arena on behalf of the kingdom of God. All right. But of course, it's not everyone individually who's going to be called to do it. I mean, as Christians, the Bible tells us that we must respect the established authority of our day. We must respect the government, whether we agree with it or not, whether we share its brand of ideology or not. We must be respectful towards it. And also, we must make sure that we are in obedience to it as well except there's only one proviso. Obviously, if the law of the land is at any point telling us to be disobedient to God, that is the one time when Christians will break the law. Obviously, because where the law of the land drives you against the word of God, the word of God is the higher law. But nevertheless, we've got to make sure that as Christians, we are establishment people. I mean, let's not see Christians out in these demonstration and marches, you know, yelling pigs at the police. That does nothing but dishonour the name of Jesus at all. But, you see, the thing is that the fact that we've got to be submissive and respectful doesn't mean that we are not absolutely free within the law to speak out against the governing authorities when they are wrong. So again, can you see, we're not talking about being wet. We're not talking about being wimps. So many things today, bad housing, poverty, unemployment. 
These are issues where, where the church needs to be out there working. They are issues into which God wants to speak through his people correctively. And it's tremendously important. I mean, for instance, we all know that there are people who scrounge on the benefit system. I know people who've got a job and yet they're still you know, signing on. There are scroungers there. But my goodness, there are genuinely hard up people. And yet today, their benefit levels are going down and down and down. And that is something that God wants to speak into. He doesn't want the government to be cutting back on that. He doesn't want the poor of this country being systematically dumped. And we've got to speak into that. And God is going to raise up Christians who are going to do that. But remember, no one can be fighting on every front at the same time. And we've got to be careful. I mean, there are Christians who expect... I mean, if someone's got a burden for evangelism, they seem to expect everyone to have the burden for evangelism. Someone else might have a burden for social issues. Can you see, whatever your burden is, you can't expect that everyone else has your burden. Otherwise, every Christian would have so many burdens that they'd be having a nervous breakdown because they'd never be able to remember whether this is street, wit you know, street witness night or social action night. Can you see? They'd get absolutely confused. So don't spread yourself too thin in any way at all. If we do that, we won't get anything done. Now, it's important to remind ourselves that here we're dealing with priority number three. There are quite a few Christians who I've known of who they've got stuck into kind of the social action thing. And, and that's right and that's good. But it's got out of balance in their mind and they've ended up more political activists than Christians. Now, can you see a potential danger there? We've got to remind ourselves that the priorities are this. It's God first, then it's our church, and then it's the world. Now, that doesn't mean that the world gets left out, because it certainly doesn't. But what it does mean, if you get stuck into the social action arena, which is absolutely right for some believers to do, but if you really throw yourself into that and lose sight of your priorities, of God first and then the church, then you'll find that it won't take Satan too long to turn you from a Christian into a political activist. Can you see who calls himself a Christian? We've got to be very, very careful about that because you can get consumed in social issues to the point you're almost obsessed with it and so committed to that one thing that your church is being left out and the Lord is being left out, etc., etc. We must make sure, each one of us, that we remember our priorities in the Lord. But having said that, whatever God calls you to do, do it. That is the rule. Whatever God has called you to do, do it. If God has called you to street witnessing, do it. Don't expect every other believer to be called to it. And it's the same with this corporate serving of the world. That may well be your bag. That may well be what God has called you to do. But don't assume that everyone is called to be doing the same thing. Let's just go into the Old Testament and just have a little dippy, very quick, and just see God's attitude to social justice. Just to remind ourselves, or to make it absolutely clear to ourselves, that God is concerned with social <coughs> justice. 
you know, the uh, sort of like the gospel isn't just about getting to heaven, it's about quality of life down here in society as well. And in Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 6, we read this. And this is God speaking. Is not this the fast that I choose? I mean, he's got his people fasting. They're religiously orthodox, all right? But they're being a bunch of hypocrites. Listen. He says, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? Now there we see God was angry with his people because they weren't being concerning themselves with social justice. Can you see they were turning a blind eye to it and all the oppression going on in their society and they were causing it. They weren't standing against it, and therefore God was angry with them. Go back into Isaiah chapter 1. And in verse 17, we'll start from verse 16. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Now there we can see quite clearly God's concern for what I call the corporate serving of the world. Society at large, social issues. It's important that those believers who are called to be inputting into that area, whether it's as a full-time politician and social worker, or whether it's what you do in your spare time, it's important that those of God's people who are called to it are serving the world in that corporate aspect of social justice. Right, now let's move on to the individual. Now this obviously does apply to all of us, because every believer is called to be serving unbelievers on an individual level. I mean, for instance, the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told. You all know the parable. What's significant about it is that Jesus told that in response to a question. And the question was simply this, who is my neighbour? And you'll remember that that question arose because Jesus was saying, love the Lord your God, etc., etc., and love your neighbour as yourself. Now, in actual fact, that love your neighbour as yourself, that isn't a fellowship verse. That's a world verse. Can you see that? Because when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, the goody in it was a Samaritan, not a Jew. Can you see? And so what we've got here is that Jesus is saying, look, for your faith to be real, you've got to love your neighbour as yourself. And the response came then, who is my neighbour? Jesus told the parable. The point is this. Our neighbour whom Jesus has commanded us to serve. Our neighbour that needs serving is whoever we come across with a need that we can meet. Now sometimes you're going to come across people with needs you can't meet. I mean, you've got to be realistic about this. But the point is, our neighbour is whoever we come across, obviously non-Christians totally included, whoever we come across whom we can actually serve. 
So now, in regards to sort of like doing good works in, in, in the world, it boils down to this, and it's very, very simple. If our non-Christian friends and neighbours need help, we've got to help them. You see, simple as that. We've seen already that if we need each other's help, we've got to help each other. And now we're seeing if our non-Christian friends and neighbours need help, we've got to help them. Not to the exclusion of the church, but nevertheless we've got to fit them in somehow and we've got to be ready to serve them in whatever way we can. And something else too. We've got to make sure that when we do help a non-Christian, that we don't do so with the attitude of seeing it as an excuse to lay the gospel on them. Is he? And some Christians do that. They'll help a non-Christian out, and then they'll kind of use that as a pressure, kind of a blackmail thing, and then lay the gospel on them. As if they're saying, right, I'm going to help them because I might be able to tell them the gospel. No, that's to misunderstand. We help them because they need help. Can you see? We don't help unbelievers because in so doing we might get our chance to lead them to the Lord. That isn't the motive. If we do get a chance and lead them to the Lord, fantastic. But that's the icing on the cake. That's not what it's all about. We help them because they need help. There are no strings attached or anything like that at all. We give them help simply because they are created in the likeness of God and they are precious to God and God helps the people who are precious to him, obviously. Understand this, unbelievers out there are not just souls to be saved. It's very important this, there are Christians who have that attitude. And if they do help, I mean, sort of say they see a non-Christian in need, and they'll think, oh wow, this is a chance to get them saved. You know, seeing them as if they're just a soul that needs saving, and so they'll do something because this person might, you know, and they go home and they've got another notch on their Bible. Can you see, that is dehumanising, that is dehumanising the very unbeliever that you're helping. Of course we are going to use any chance we get to bring people to Jesus. And if by helping a non-Christian, a perfect opportunity presents itself to tell them the gospel as well, use it. But what you've got to make sure is that you don't help them just to be creating an opportunity to preach the gospel. We've got to help them simply because they need help. They are worth helping. They're created in the image of God. They're not salvation fodder. And we've got to make very, very sure that we don't ever become that type of Christian. You know, like sort of combine harvesters, you know, just going around. And, and believe me, you know, a combine harvester, when it's gone through a field, there's a mess left behind. There really is. And we've got to make sure we're not like that with people, that we're respecting them all the time. Do you remember Jesus and the ten lepers that he healed? Now, when he did that, Jesus didn't heal them on an agreed precondition that they were going to become his disciples. In fact, nine of them didn't. There was only one of them who came back to say, thanks Lord, who actually became a Christian. Now Jesus would have known that of these ten lepers, only one was going to become a Christian, but he healed them anyway. Now what does that tell us? It tells us this. Jesus didn't heal people because he thought it might increase their chances of getting saved. Jesus healed people because they were ill and in distress. Can you see the difference? 
If they became disciples, well, that's great, that's fantastic. But that isn't why Jesus did it. It was just sheer naked love for them. They needed help, he helped them. And that is the same attitude that we must make sure that we have towards unbelievers as well. We've got to serve them. And that includes too, I mean, we've spoken about the way that we need to be available to help each other financially. We've seen that, sharing money as the Lord leads, when that's needed. Now, let me say as well that there's a time to do that with unbelievers. Make sure it's sensible. You know, don't, don't, don't stick a £10 note in an alcoholic tramp's hand and say, go and buy yourself a meal. Oh, that's stupid, isn't it? Take them to a restaurant and you buy them a meal and sit there with them and make sure. But obviously there is a time as well. There are unbelievers who need financial help. We've got to be open that there may be the times when the Lord says, well, look, they got some financial difficulties. You help them out. No strings attached, just give them the money, you know, if need be, chuck it through their letterbox so they don't even know it's you. But can you see practical ways in which we are to serve the world with good works? But not in order to get people saved, not to get a handle on them, you know, to yank them into the kingdom of God, but simply because they're created in the image of God and because they are precious to God. And we must make sure that they are precious to us as well. Right, we come to the conclusion of the first phase now of this series. Let's recap very, very quickly. We've seen quite simply that as a church, we have a list of biblical priorities. And biblical priority number one, this comes first, is that we have a work of faith and a labour of love towards the Lord himself. And we saw that that has two aspects. Number one, showing him we love him. We're to be a worshipping church, telling the Lord, showing him how much we love him. And the second aspect is serving him, that we've got to be an obedient and mature church. And then that's priority number one. Priority number two is our work of faith and our labour of love towards one another in the family of God, in the church. And remember the two aspects of that, the first one we saw, was showing each other that we love each other. And we saw that the main thing that that is going to entail is that we accept one another just the way we are. That our concern is to provide that environment of loving emotional security in which God can get on and deal with us. And then we saw the second aspect of that was serving one another in practical ways. And then thirdly, our work of faith and labour of love towards the world. Evangelism, we did last time, preaching the gospel, and tonight doing good works in the world. Let's just see those priorities once more. Go to Matthew. Remind ourselves of them. Matthew chapter 26. And a little story. I love this story. Matthew 26 and verse 6. <clears throat> now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he sat at table. But when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. 
But Jesus, aware of this, said, Why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Now, can you see in that number one priority, the disciples were getting their priorities wrong. Can you see? They were putting social issues before what Jesus wanted. So there we see very clearly, priority number one is to the Lord himself. Now go back into Galatians 6.10. We've already read this tonight. Galatians 6.10, and Paul says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So priority number two, the church, and then priority number three, the world. Right, so from that, next time, we will proceed to run the full gamut of church life. And, and just kind of, you know, to sort of whet the old appetite, next, next time, it, we're a, a really fundamental study. It's, it's one of the, the talks that is going to be the heart of the whole series of tremendous importance. And we're going to be looking at commitment and membership. So do come back next time. Right, we'll finish there.